Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Today we uh, continue our look at this chapter that penetrates right to the heart of true spirituality. And uh, this morning we will take a look particularly at verses uh, 3 through 8. Let me begin just by reading those for us. Paul says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The inner person in other words, defines who we are. The Scripture tells us that again and again. Your inner thoughts, they shape who you are on the outside. They determine everything. They determine your responses. They determine your behavior. They dictate your relationships. And so as a Christian, it's vital that if we are ever to grow in maturity, to grow in the ways the Lord would have us, to develop the way that we're supposed to develop in Christ-likeness, it's essential then that we, that we develop these certain ways of thinking, certain habits of thinking, patterns in our mind that we're trained after, because as we think in our hearts, so are we. For the sake of a church then, it is vital, it is key that we develop these patterns of thinking, that we develop these, we might even say, attitudes at the very core of our church. It's not so much the development of buildings or programs that really mean anything to a church as it is the development of these kinds of ways of thinking. Paul knew this, and so after filling our minds with so much theology after 11 chapters in the book of Romans... He's called us at the beginning of this chapter to have renewed minds. Minds that are not being conformed to patterns of the world, but minds that are being transformed into the realities of the gospel that we have studied. That was his mandate, you remember, there in verse 2. So that by doing that, testing, we may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What happens, as we saw uh, as a result of this is the effect of proper uh, worship, the effect of the right kind of motive in our worship, focusing on the, the uh, mercies of God, offering ourselves to God and discerning what His will is in our lives. But in verse 3, Paul takes that kind of renewed thinking and he applies it, if you will. We might even say he expands it, bringing our focus first and foremost to the way we think about ourselves. That's the first place to begin in this renewed thinking in our minds, and, and particularly 
in verses 3 through 8, the way we think about ourselves in the context of a ministry, in the context of a body of Christ, in the context of a church. He's bringing it, in other words, with a clear focus on what we might call our self-awareness or our spiritual self-awareness. That's where renewed thinking must begin. It must begin with a spiritual self-awareness. There are many ways you can conform your thinking to the pattern of this world, but perhaps the most dangerous, the most subtle, is simply the way you're taught to think about yourself and your own interest. But at the very core of the transformation that Paul says needs to take place, is in our passage this morning when he says, I say to you, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's a call to spiritual self-awareness. To see yourself, to see your spiritual standing, to see your life, to see your place, your position, not through your own eyes, the eyes of your own pride, the eyes of of your own self-flattery, but appropriate, appropriately. I imagine we've all had sort of this experience where we were out somewhere, maybe going through some sort of a social gathering, and we're mingling with friends and having conversations and having a great time, and we're just thinking how well the evening is going until we pass in front of a mirror. And then you see that stain on your shirt or that big piece of food hanging from your lip or, yeah, thank you, Uh, it's not only me. That's self-awareness. And suddenly, whenever that happens, then you, you retrace the whole evening and you think about all of those conversations that you've had and now all of them look differently because now you see the way people saw you. And suddenly you're self-aware. Suddenly you're, you're more cognizant of maybe how silly you looked and how foolish you might have seemed or how gracious they've been because now you have realized the way they saw you. Well, Paul's calling us to develop this, but in a spiritual sense, to look at ourselves the right way. No longer in the exalted view that we are naturally prone to, no longer thinking too highly of ourselves, but thinking soberly. Sober judgment is what it says in the ESV. Sufraneo is the word. It just, in many cases, is translated as sobriety or or sober-minded, it simply means to be in your right mind or thinking with your right mind, to be in control of your mental faculties. And so it's used in contrast to drunkenness, obviously, but it's also contrasted at other times in the New Testament with immature thinking or or irrational fears in some cases, or in one place, uh, even insane thinking, being in your right mind as opposed to being insane. And one of the most insane and immature ways that you can think as a Christian is to think highly of yourself. That is the essence of worldly thinking, and it has no place in the mind of a mature believer. So we're not to be conformed to that. We're not to emulate that. We're to be transformed from that. To think soberly is to understand. It is to understand not only from principle, but from experience, that 
pride is foolishness, that there is no real satisfaction in self-satisfaction, that there is no point in pouring your time and your energies into self-ambition. Sober mind and sober judgment has taught you the vanity of all the accumulation of accolades and recognition and reputation and all that the world seeks after, the praise of men, the praise of women, all of them have no value when you are sober-minded, when you're thinking rightly. So Paul calls us not to think this way. Not to think more highly of ourselves Then we ought to think. It's a word of comparison, a word of measurement, setting two things side by side. And so we're supposed to set what we think of ourselves next to what we ought to think and weigh them out. Or as Paul goes on to say, each of us is to think each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned each of us. And really, he goes on throughout these verses to present the way this works out in the context of a church, in the context of a body of Christ. And he does it with three ways, you might say, that we're supposed to measure ourselves or three basic criteria of measurement to help you and I develop spiritual self-awareness. Three criteria of measurement that helps us develop spiritual self-awareness. He's going to mention the grace given to us, and then he's going to take us to the group among whom we belong in the body of Christ, and then finally, the gifts that we have been assigned within that group. All of those things are the criteria that he puts in front of us that he wants us to think rightly about and measure ourselves rightly with. Now... We're going to look at them over the next couple of weeks. We'll have time just to get into the first one this morning. I apologize. I know it's taking a long time in Romans 12, but these are important truths. So important for us as a body of Christ. So this morning, we turn our attention to just this first criteria of measurement that Paul puts in front of us, which is simply, as he says in verse 3, the grace given to us. And particularly there at the end, he wants us to think soberly, uh, each as God has assigned to us a measure of faith. And the emphasis there is on each, as if no one's left out. Each person has been given equally, it seems, a measure, an allotment of this faith. God, in other words, has played no favorites. And if you've been with us studying all the way through Romans 9 through 11, this is no new theme for you. This is what he has been saying over and over again. You remember in chapter 11, verse 32, he sort of rounds out the whole discussion, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, saying that God has consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. And so the whole emphasis has been we all have received Mercy, we all have received grace. It's all equal. There are no favorites. There are no believers. There are no believers who are more beloved. There are none who are thought of more highly by God. There are none who are assigned a greater measure of faith by Him. 
You are, in other words, just as in need as the guy or the girl next to you. There's no reason to think of yourself more highly than them. Because God's given to all of them an allotment of faith. And yet the sad reality is people do this all the time. They imagine that they are more important. They imagine that they're better, or at least they want to be recognized as better. And you see this characteristic of high-mindedness all around you. It manifests itself in the self-promoting language that we used or in the self-commending ways that we speak about ourselves. It manifests itself in the self-willed individuals who are always demanding their own way. It manifests itself in the conceit and the arrogance uh, and the pride of personal accomplishment or position. And Jesus, you remember, warns us about this. Over and over again, he warns us about this. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, because he he gives it in its most poignant way in the example of the Pharisees, saying that we should be careful not to follow their example. He says there in Matthew 23, they sit in Moses' seat, but don't do what they do, he says. Don't follow their example. Why? In verse 5, because they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. That is to speak of their their garments, their robe. They, They want to draw attention. They love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They want the title. They want the recognition. They want to be noticed. But eight, verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. You're all brothers. You all have received a measure of faith. You all have received the same measure of grace. You all have the same standing. One of the dominant ways that the New Testament refers to us is as children. We're pictured again and again and again as children. Jesus says in order to enter the kingdom, you have to enter the kingdom this way. You have to see yourself as a child, which implies dependency. That's what a child is. A child is a dependent. They must be provided for. They must be protected. They must be guided. They must be given wisdom. They need constant instruction as you are all too wearily aware. And we all go through that state, I suppose, in our parenting when our children come to have a sense of entitlement as if all the things that they have are somehow owed to them or somehow they have done something. The bed that they sleep in or the dishes that they eat off of or the clothing that they wear, they forget where all that stuff came from sometimes. Or they assume that it is just supposed to be given to them. And in calling us children, the New Testament wants us to develop this mentality that all we have, we have received. We're all brothers. We all receive this measure of faith. We all receive this measure of grace. We all stand in the same dependent relationship. We all have the same standing. 
The Pharisees didn't have that perspective, though. They wanted to be set apart. They wanted to be recognized as having achieved something. They loved the praise. They loved the recognition. They loved the place of honor. They loved the chief seats. That is, the seats for those who had some official capacity in the synagogue. And if you didn't give it to them, they were going to make you pay because they thought highly of themselves. They couldn't tolerate being overlooked. They couldn't tolerate if they weren't consulted. They couldn't tolerate if people didn't view them as teacher, as rabbi. But Jesus ends the section in Matthew 23 telling His disciples, down in verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, he's warning his disciples, look, if you are always fighting for recognition and fighting for exaltation and fighting for position, if you're the one who's always sort of battling for that to exalt yourself, this is what's going to happen. God's going to humble you. If you are so high on yourself, if you are so intent that others think as highly of you as you do of yourself, if you are so intent that you get their recognition, their consultation, their adoration, or whatever it might be, if you are so intent that people think as highly of you as you think of yourself, He's warning you. God is going to humble you. But on the other hand, if you spend your time deflecting that that praise and giving glory to Him and giving honor to Him and giving recognition to others and respecting the way that uh, God is using other people and all that, if you humble yourself, what's going to happen? God's going to exalt you. It's up to Him, by the way, when and how He does that, but He's going to do it. See, some people are so consumed. They're so consumed with being sought out so consumed with being recognized, so consumed with being honored. So the, the proud believer, in the case of the Pharisee, the proud leader is always complaining that they're not being commended, they're not being honored, they're not being looked at, or they're offended when they're overlooked. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because your exaltation doesn't come from other people. It doesn't come from other people. They don't have that kind of power. God is the one who exalts you. And you humble yourself, He'll take care of that. But if you're not thinking rightly about yourself, watch out. See, when we're sober-minded, we're focused on God's commendation. When we're sober-minded, we're focused on what God thinks. We don't really care what other people think. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me over at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, another passage that demonstrates this. 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul is describing his own ministry, he's in a place that he is being overlooked. He's not being valued. And he tells them, look, you know, look, I'm just a steward. I'm just a, a servant, just a slave in the household of God, he says in verse 1. 
But he says, I want you to notice, down in verse um, 4, he says, uh, actually verse 3, With me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. But I'm not by that acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Or as he says at the end of verse 5, each one is to receive his commendation from God. It's not a big deal if you commend me. It's not a big deal to me whether you recognize me or don't recognize me or commend me or don't commend me. What you think is not a big deal to me. It doesn't matter. I'm not offended by it. It doesn't hurt my feelings. It doesn't make me uh, think ill of you. It doesn't make me want to be spiteful towards you. And he contrasts all of this with the self-exalting attitude of the Corinthians. You'll notice down in verse 7. Who sees you or who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you then did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? See, they had a... They had an, A high view of themselves. They thought more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They had an inflated view of themselves. That's why he says, back at the end of verse 6, they were puffed up in favor of one against another. And so Paul asked them, if you have something, if you have something, if you have a gift, if you have a ministry or some connection or whatever it might be, where did you get that? If there's some accomplishment, where did that come from? What do you have that you didn't receive? Do you have a ministry? Do you have a a gift? Who gave that to you? Did you build it yourself? Did it come from your own wisdom, from your own labors? Is that something you're taking credit for? Or was it given to you by God? If it was, then why boast about it? Or more to the point, why do you complain when you're not recognized, when you're not commended, when you're not honored? Paul had just presented the example of himself and a a man named Apollos who were preaching both in Corinth, and he said that God had uh, assigned to each one of them, God had given to each one of them a ministry. And it was assigned by God. He says this back in chapter 3, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul understood this about his ministry. Whatever he had in terms of ministry, in terms of experience, in terms of success, all of it came from God. It, didn't, it wasn't intended to exalt him. It wasn't intended to draw attention to him. And if these Corinthians recognized that, that was okay. But if they didn't recognize that, it meant nothing to Paul. It was a very small thing. Because, as he says... My commendation comes to me from God. I humble myself and I'll allow God to take care of the exaltation. So Paul's asking these Corinthians, who sees you as any different? Kind of like what he's implying there in Romans 12. I mean, who sees you as any different? If you really believe that all you have has been given to you, why do you complain when people aren't recognizing it. He mockingly puts these, these uh, attitudes forth that he 
was picking up from them. You are already full, or you have all you want, as it says in the ESV. It's a word for fullness. You're already full. But Jesus says, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts. You're already rich. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor. How do you view yourself? Are you the one with all the riches? Are you the one with all the fullness? Are you the one with all the answers? Or are you the needy one? The hungry one? The thirsty one? The poor one? Paul's saying, look, you have forgotten all you have received. You're thinking too highly of yourself. But you're really no different than anyone else. And God has allotted to you a measure of faith. Back to Romans chapter 12. This is, this is the kind of high-mindedness that Paul wants us to develop as a matter of first order in the renewing of our minds. And he demonstrates that, if you'll notice in verse 3, even the way he speaks about himself. He comes and he makes this appeal, by the grace given to me, I say to you, or I say to everyone among you, all of this, he says, is, Based on grace. Paul could have left that out. I mean, he could have just launched into his admonition. Hey, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he demonstrates what he's talking about. He presents himself as a recipient of grace. Well aware that he has even the role that he has by grace. And and to be honest, Paul can hardly talk about his ministry anywhere you turn in the New Testament without saying something similar. He was always drawing attention to this. He understood that his position and even his authority and his apostle, every one of them were given as a gift. It had nothing to do with his particular accomplishments. It had nothing to do with his particular aptitude. It had nothing to do with his particular intelligence. It was always presented as a gift. And he always was referring to himself. Even uh, later in chapter 15, in verse um, 15, Paul says this. He speaks about the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. He never had a ministry, never had a position in and of himself. It was always something that was given to him. Or in 1 Corinthians 3, as we saw, according to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. I worked, he says, to the best of my skill, but even that was of grace. Ephesians 3 is one of the more clear passages. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me in the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, he says. So Paul was so aware of his own sinfulness, he was so aware of his own weakness, his own unworthiness, he would never present himself as being worthy of any of this stuff. He knew he wasn't worthy of it. He never forgot that. And so he always understood that his role, whatever God had assigned to him, was just a gift. He was as surprised as anyone that he was in his position because he had a sense that he was the least of all apostles. Although in his official capacity, he was equal with them in authority. He wasn't inferior to them in that way. He was, at least in his own mind, 
the chief of sinners. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I'm just a clay pot, just a a garbage pail. Unworthy of really even being able to function in the role that I function in. Unworthy of my position, deserving of nothing but being cast aside like any cheap, disposable pot. In spite of all the magnificent ways the Lord had used him through the years, he never gave in to the temptation of thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think. In fact, when he at one point described how the Lord had given him some magnificent revelations, he says as a way of keeping him from thinking this way about himself, exalting himself. He says the Lord sent a messenger into his life to afflict him. He prayed three times that the Lord would remove it. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in weakness. In fact, Paul goes on to say there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, after understanding this, after seeing this, He actually says, therefore, I actually boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest on me. I'm content with insults, with weaknesses, with hardships, with calamities. I'm content with those things. Why? Because I understand who I am. I understand that I'm nothing. I understand that in weakness, I'm strong. I'm strong in weakness because when I humble myself, the Lord exalts me. I understand that. And so I'm content. Someone wants to cast me aside. Someone wants to insult me. Someone wants to throw some hardship my way. I'm content. Because in those weaknesses, I'm strong. Now, this is the view of ourselves That Paul's telling us we need to cultivate this result of this renewed thinking that God wants us to have. As one person defines it, it's the true and genuine sense of conviction that you are completely unworthy of the goodness, the mercy, and the grace of God and incapable of anything in value apart from those gifts. You're completely unworthy of any of that. And if anything is accomplished, it is only by God's gifts. One of my best buddies in college, a guy named Cliff, drove a Honda Civic, a white Honda Civic. I could still see it today. That Honda Civic, it was always parked in the furthest parking spot. I would come in sometimes after the weekend and people had gone home and I would come in and I would drive into the parking lot and the whole place would be empty. And there would be Cliff's car way out at the very end. And I just kind of watched this over a couple of years. So after a couple of years, I asked Cliff. I said, Cliff, why do you always take that parking spot over there? And Cliff said, well, I mean, I, I just thought that somebody else might need the others. This was Cliff. He was always, always unassuming. Never assumed that he should have the front place. Never assumed that he should have the honored place. Never assumed that he should ever put his own interest above someone else's. In fact, I remember watching him one time 
bring someone to the cafeteria and, and, and feed them. I noticed that Cliff wasn't eating and I realized he was just feeding them off of his meal plan because Cliff had that mentality. Nothing he had was his own. Everything he had was given to him. It, it wasn't something he earned. It wasn't something he deserved. So whether if it was a car, if it was a meal plan or whatever it was, it was just something that was given to him in order to minister to other people. Cliff was in our wedding. He was a, a little older man, but he hadn't changed a bit. Still a servant. Still a man I want to emulate. As Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 12, this is, this, this is the key to spiritual youthful, usefulness. This is the key to fruitfulness. This kind of thinking within your ministry, within your church, within your connectedness to the body of Christ, and within the gifts that the Lord has given to you, this is key that you not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That you get to this place in this view of yourself that you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. That you think properly about yourself, not too highly. That you view yourself with with true spiritual eyes, you might say. A proper view of yourself is reluctant to promote yourself. A proper view of yourself is embarrassed when commended and content to never be recognized. A proper view of yourself is eager to give credit to God and to take none of the credit for yourself. A proper view of yourself is content to submit to all the plans within God's sovereign will for you. This was the Apostle Paul. He lived this out. He could hardly speak of his life and hardly speak of his ministry without speaking of what had been given to him. And so he appeals to us to have the same view. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think because God has given to each one of us a portion of this faith. Let me take you to one more place to show you what Paul has in mind. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We will spend, just to go ahead and let you know, we'll spend a little more time here next week, but I I couldn't resist just framing this for us because it's so illustrative of this high-mindedness that Paul is warning us about. It is illustrative of the things that we've already talked about this morning. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to each of us to reach even to you. For we're not overextending ourselves as though we didn't reach to you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others, but our hope is that our faith, is that your faith increases, excuse me, as your faith increases, our area of influence among you will be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in the lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another areas, another's area of influence. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who whom the Lord commends. Paul speaks of these kinds of people. They're always commending themselves. They're not interested in giving the Lord the glory and the credit. They care little for divine approval. Everything is about human approval. They, they, the, the praise 
of themselves is on their own lips. They measure themselves by themselves. They seek after credit and honor and glory by trying to cast themselves against the giftedness and credit and glory and ministry of other people. They're full of self-glory, self-ambition. This is the person who thinks that a ministry can't survive without them, that things wouldn't uh, be held together. They're the vital link in everything. The person who wants everyone to know that they're superior, that they're better, and they cannot bear second place. They love popularity. They love preeminence. And their stand is each other. That's how they measure themselves, by themselves. They measure based on their knowledge. They boast that they know more, their power. They boast that they're more influential, their success. They boast that they've accomplished more. In contrast, when Paul speaks about his credentials, he did so back in chapter 6. They were rejection, tears, weakness, Hunger. You know what my credentials are? I don't have enough to buy food. Would you take me as your pastor? I don't have enough money to buy food. I don't have a house. I don't have all the standards by which you measure yourself. I don't have all those things, Paul's saying. He knew that by all their standards, he was inferior. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter a hill of beans to him. He would not allow himself to get drawn in with these guys and all of their silly arguments about who was the greatest or who was supposed to be the first or who was supposed to be preeminent. He says, says, we will not boast, verse 13, beyond our limits. These guys thought more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They were always boasting beyond their limits. They were always overstating their achievements, overstating their influence, overstating their impact, overstating their giftedness in order to garner prestige and recognition and honor. And Paul says he's not going to do it. He's not going to boast beyond his limits. You see, the one who thinks more highly of himself isn't content to minister within the limits that God has assigned. These people who think too highly of themselves, they don't like limits. They don't want their their influence curbed. And so they draw attention to all their accomplishments in comparison to others in order to expand the limits beyond their measure. The nose into every area to exaggerate what they did somewhere else. They always know something more than you know. They've always done something more than you've done. They always have experience where you don't have experience. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm just, I'm not going to be drawn into that. I'll boast within the limits. Basically what you already know. He says, the ministry that has reached to you, what you see, what you know, what you've experienced, that's all I'm going to talk about. And then Paul ultimately says, the one who thinks rightly of himself, down in verse 17, if he's going to boast, let him boast in the Lord. Let him speak with an absolute sense of amazement that God has used him at all. Because he knows how unfit and how unworthy he is to be used. 
I just I still don't understand, still don't get it why God would have done. I mean, I, I'm sure, yeah, yeah, I was part of that, but I mean, I don't understand. I mean, why would God have used me? Just gives testimony to God's power. This is the sober-mindedness that Paul wants us to have. If you have a ministry, it came to you by the Lord. If you have a gift, it came to you by the Lord. If you have a possession, it came to you by the Lord. If you have faith, it came to you by the Lord. You present that, then you present a sober-minded, a mature Christian walk. So you're not above anyone else. It's not that everyone else is below you. You're just as useless as the rest of us, apart from God's grace. And, back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in converse, you're just as much as in need of everyone else as they might be of you. This is Paul's second point, and really one we'll get into next week, but I'll just mention it here. The second criteria of measurement to help us develop this proper spiritual awareness is the group to whom you're connected inextricably. As in one body, we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function, so we, although we are many, we're one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We can't separate because we're needy people. Needy for what you bring to my life from the Lord. Needy for all the ways that the Lord has used you to minister to me through all these years. We need each other in the Lord's providence in the way that He uses us. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord, I pray for us today that we wouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but that we would have sober and sound judgment. Judgment that's in keeping with your truth. Judgment that's not intoxicated with our own pride. Lord, we learn this from our Savior, who although He existed in the form of God, didn't consider that something to be clutched onto, but He emptied Himself and became a servant to all. He poured out Himself, even to death on a cross. Lord, if You take us that pathway, if that is the route You bring us, You have every right. And may we humble ourselves under Your mighty hand. And trust that you will exalt us in due time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.